Hello, this is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. It's 47 selections from the works of Alexander Kollontai. And I'm going to do something a little bit different today because I'm actually doing this recording on the road. I'm not at home and I don't have my good microphone, so I apologize in advance for perhaps the poor quality of the sound. But I have just attended a three-day conference on global socialist feminism, and I am here with Julia Mead, who is my uh, former student at Bowdoin College, but also my co-author of an article that we wrote in 2018. Yeah. 2018 called What Has Socialism Done for Women, which came out in Catalyst magazine. We also wrote a piece together on gender roles and their portrayal and discussion of gender roles in communist Czechoslovakia and Bulgaria. And I can't, I think that came out in 2019 in the Journal History of Communism in Europe. And so Julia was here for this conference as well. And I'm going to take a break from discussing the essay, Marriage and Everyday Life, which I started in the previous podcast, and I will return to that uh, in the future. And, but today I want to sort of have a conversation, sort of a debriefing about this conference, particularly because when we started this conference on Friday, the first session was devoted to the writings of three women, and one of them was Alexandra Kollontai. We read her 1909 essay, The Social Basis of the Woman Question. So I want to turn it over to you and have you talk a little bit about your impressions, maybe your thoughts mm -hmm. about the conference and sort of the role that kind of Colin Tai might have played as sort of a spiritual, <laughs> emotional, intellectual <laughs> foremother of the conference. Yeah, she. well, I was glad that we started with this text because it is, to my mind, the foundational text of socialist feminism. And in it, she lays out that the the problem of women's equality is you know, rooted in the means of production and women's relationship to society. And she says that it, you know, the family will be reformed when women are not subject to domestic labor in the home. So I think we all have Kolontai in our minds. And also she's, you know, She's cool. Yeah, she's very cool. <laughs> she's yeah. cool. And, you know, it's fun to think about how she lived her politics. Yeah, and how she lived this kind of very provocative, sexually emancipated life. Definitely. So I'm coming to this actually from thinking a lot about men and masculinity under socialism and their relationship to the means of, the means of production, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and to political economy generally. So... And, and that's something that I found that we kept returning to is this persistence of patriarchy, even within socialist states that we had hoped would dissolve <laughs> the problem of patriarchy. Right, and they didn't. And that's a little bit, right, of this essay that I was reading, Marriage and Everyday yeah. Life, is, is the, per, you know, Kolontai's radical reforms slowly being being rolled back. Mm -hmm. And I think what was so interesting about this conference is that it, you know, we had 30 different scholars and activists from around the world, quite a few from China, but mm -hmm. we also had people from India, people working on Vietnam, people working on Latin America. Mm -hmm. We had a guy from Algeria. Mm -hmm. So uh, a woman from Poland, a woman from a Serbian woman. So it was a, it was a pretty diverse group of people. And in some ways people were all coming at this question of the relationship between the family and gender roles and the material base, right? The, the, the means of production, so to speak, how 
the material base actually shapes our identities and our relations and especially our interpersonal, uh, even yeah. intimate relations with each other. Yeah. So how do you think, like, as you go forward into your research, I know you're still very early in your academic career, but how do you think that these ideas inform the way you're thinking about the kinds of researches, research projects you want to do? Mm -hmm. Well, um, for our listeners, I'm a first year um, PhD student in history. Um, at the University of Chicago. So yes, I'm, I'm at the beginning of it, but the way that they are really informing my questions has to do with, uh, with transition. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to look at the role within the family, coal mining families specifically in Czechoslovakia and hopefully also in the United States as a, as a comparison through the industrialization and through the end of socialism. So my question really is, how do these reified nationalist you know, nuclear families, the coal miner, his wife, his children, how does the mythology and how does the lived experience of that change after socialism? And then also in the Western context where there wasn't a, a quick regime change into neoliberal precarity. So it's, it's the way that, that these theoretical tools help me is really understanding that something that we might think of as essential or natural or unchanging as a family, how people love each other, how people think of their children can change really dramatically, really quickly. So that's that's the use of it for me. But what's so wonderful about this conference is we've talked a lot about kind of the nitty gritty practical challenges of writing about socialism. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about archives and where they are and where they aren't. One participant was saying that there are you know, many important socialist feminist activists burned their papers because they were afraid of political retaliation. So as a young historian entering the, the profession and choosing to write about these, these questions, I know I'm biting off a lot a lot of challenge. And you know, I almost envy my colleagues who are US historians of U.S. women's movement because, you know, as you point out, it's well archived. Very well archived. So yes. that's one thing. But to know that there are people who have looked for these things before me, who I can ask, like, hey, you know, where where are the papers from the, the WIDF, the yeah. Women's International Democratic Federation? You know, they're here and here and here. It's, you know, it's really building some scholarly community and some intergenerational transfer of knowledge, which is so useful. Yeah, the conference was, it, this was a global socialist feminist conference. You can find the website. It's globalsocialistfeminism.com. And I think the initial idea for the conference was just to really kind of create a network of people who were working on similar things in a really academic way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, exactly this question of archives and this question of like, what are the journals that we can submit to? What are the editors of which presses are friendly? Um, how do we get our work out there? How do we deal with anti-communist discourses that are really going to try to undermine us? But it ended up being something much more. <laughs> yes, it ended up being the last thing we talked about in our closing discussion was how do we as socialist feminists fight 
fascism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, is, which I think Kolontai would have been very proud of. Yes, right? yes. In some ways, I think there's an interesting intersection, right, between these histories of anti-fascism, if we look at the interwar period, right, if we look at these the anti-colonial struggles, there are quite a, quite a few people here from the global south, women of color, struggling against imperialism and neo-imperialism, colonialism and neo-colonialism, racism, all these forms of, of structural violence against people. And there's always been this voice mm-hmm. of these socialist feminists out there in the world in various different ways. Now, of course, many of these organizations were affiliated in some capacity with the Women's International Democratic Federation, but there were also these independent women, right, who were very strident advocates and using a sort of socialist feminist analysis as a way to theorize resistance against these various forms of structural violence. Mm -hmm. And we don't share those histories as often as we should, I think. And even I came away somebody who's been doing this work for so long, I came away going, wow, I still have a lot to learn about, for instance, socialist feminist struggles in India or socialist feminist struggles in Vietnam and in the, you know, the period of the, of the war and different forms of complicity and, and resistance within the women's movement internationally and, and national and different domestic contexts. So it was a, it was a really eye opening experience in some ways. Oh, for me too. I mean, you know, we're both, we both study Eastern Europe, but um, it was fascinating to talk with people working on, yeah, India was one where um, a colleague there was making the point that within the Indian left women's movement, they were really leading you know, the, the overall Communist Party in the period she was looking at, you know, so there's, it's so much richer. And I think because we have this framework of socialist feminism, we're able to talk to each other. Yes. And it's, you know, I can appreciate that without knowing the entire historiography of post-colonial India, you know, as much as I would like to. Like, we have our <laughs> we have our specializations because we have limited time, but because we have this you know, shared political commitment and these shared theoretical interests, we're really able to talk to each other. Right, right. And that was what was so nice about sort of starting the conference with Kolontai and Zetkin and, and this early Chinese feminist who was writing in 1907, I believe, yes. were her essays, right? And just having a kind of understanding that even a hundred years ago, in some ways, these socialist feminists were talking to each other. Their texts and ideas were circulating somehow, maybe even more so than ours are. I know, and we have the internet. And we have the internet, and we have email, and we have social media, we have all these things. But they were really good at, at communicating with each other and, and creating platforms and creating documents, which then got translated and, and uh, reworked and rethought and reconsidered within different domestic context. I think that's so important to remember mm-hmm. that even when they didn't have half of the technological tools that we have, they had like printing presses (laughs) (laughs) and telegraphs or something. They were able to create these congresses and, and, and put out newspapers and produce pamphlets and, and actually reach out to working class women and, and sympathetic women of the middle class. And even in the case of Colin we can never forget she was an aristocrat. Right. And actually, and create a movement that was really powerful. And in some ways sort of shaped feminist activism for the rest of the 20th century. I don't don't think there's any question, right. That these were really important 
really important women and really important movements and and we've just sort of lost the history and yeah. so it's a it's a really important project that, that that all of the scholars that were here for these three days it was three days of intense yes. sessions yeah a big weekend big weekend <laughs> but well worth it and I think that we can look to these women who are studying for practical advice on how to disseminate the, the these histories which we're working to recover you know definitely so yeah it's it's inspirational it is inspirational your historical subjects are are speaking to you (laughs) speaking directly to you right right and i think in in the case of of the social basis of the of the woman question you know colin ty is really already grappling with resistance from men with resistance from poor women or peasant women who may not fully understand the kind of project of emancipation that she's imagining, right? Mm-hmm. She's very prescient in, 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 in describing some of the struggles that we fa- still face, yeah. you know, over a hundred years. I mean, this is her essay is 1909. It's 2019. It's 110 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the fact that 30 people from around the world can sit down and read a text from 1909 and find it inspirational, I think really speaks to the power and resonance and importance and relevance of her ideas all these all these decades, even a century later. Yeah. Yeah, I have, you know, over the my copy of this text that I was annotating, all my notes are, you know, this is still a problem. We're still talking about this. This is so true. <laughs> you know, so it almost doesn't read like a primary source. It almost reads like, you know, she's a fellow scholar in our discussion, which she was and yeah. is, yeah, who's engaging the same debates that we are. Definitely. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, how much of that, of this freshness that it feels to read Colin Tai is precisely because of the erasure of these socialist feminist ideals, you know? I think it's part, I think that's precisely part of the reason why she's such a revelation to people is that so much of the literature has been, I think somebody at the at the conference actually said that there was that when they teach socialist feminism in the United States, it starts in 1970 mm-hmm. and these earlier texts don't, don't even really get discussed. Certainly, you know, cause we can push it back to Flora Tristan and the utopian socialists. They're completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. Right. But even the very important work that people like Clara Zetkin and Colin Ty were doing is, is just kind of, because it's not American. Right. Right. Yeah. And so there's this way in which the erasure is, uh, creates the, the conditions through which we read Colentine now and go, wow, mm-hmm. how did she know all this stuff? Mm-hmm. But but she, it's because we we have not been privy to that analysis in the Western Academy in particular. Yeah. And 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 it's interesting because actually I was talking to the the woman from India and she was saying that she had read Colentine, right? She knew of Colentine from before. Like in India, they read her as a as a foremother of these left feminist movements. So in some ways, I think Kolontai has a much bigger uh, impact and resonance in the global South mm. among women of color who are, who are mobilizing for social justice and against fascism than in the United States where most young American feminists don't even know who she is. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that we are close to the end. And so I want to say thank you for agreeing to be my guest. Thank you for I, me. Yes, I hope, I hope the sound quality is okay. And uh, I will pick up 
in the next episode with reading Marriage and Everyday Life. So until then, uh, thanks for listening. This has been the AK-47 podcast. I'm Kristen Godsey. My guest has been Julia Mead, who's a graduate student in history at the University of Chicago. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, tell your friends, and keep up the good fight. Oh,